0: Good morning. I'm so glad. Uh, yeah, really, everybody's yeah, really good. Yeah. Happy, happy Fourth. Everybody's excited. Uh, I'm so glad that you chose this class this morning, uh, above all of the other, other choices. Um, so I don't know how to feel about your attendance, but uh, over the next couple week, couple, the next five weeks. So really, next week will be a good indicator, won't it? Um, we are going to uh, talk about individuals who are really serving as illustrations of, of a deeper point that we're all going to try to make. We're going to look at profiles of different individuals who have had uh, their lives changed uh, by the gospel, or at least reflect um, an issue that we might deal with day in and day out in our own lives, some of them are historical, but this is not primarily a history lesson. Uh, this is uh, meant to shine a little bit of light on a, a deeper Again, issue that we deal with in our lives and an issue that the Bible brings up. So this morning we're going to talk about George Whitfield, old cross-eyed George. Let's pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we give you great thanks for your servant, George Whitfield, uh, his boldness to proclaim the gospel. And Lord, for his uh, witness that affects even us here today, we thank you for your word and its ability to change lives. As it changed George Whitfield's; it changes ours. And so may it continue to do as your word never returns void, but accomplishes that which it is purposed to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, George Whitfield, famous 18th century preacher, uh, grew up in England. His mother was an innkeeper, which means that George grew up in a bar, literally, Uh, and he went to the local local grammar school, which actually is a pretty good grammar school, and learned enough, but because it was just he and his mom, uh, he had to, as he said, trade in his books and put on his blue apron. So he put on his blue apron and tended bar and worked at the inn for two years, uh, but he clearly was not idle during that time because he was able to get into Oxford, and he went to Pembroke College in Oxford, and there's a funny story that several years ago Um, somebody went and visited Pembroke-Oxford, who was such a Whitfield fan. And Whitfield is world known. He's very famous. And they asked the porter at the door, which were Whitfield's rooms? And they said, I don't know, but I can show you Samuel Johnson's. Right, who wrote the terrible dictionary. The one, actually some great definitions. The one where Johnson defines oats, and it says underneath oats, what horses eat in England, what people eat in Scotland. (laughs) Um, uh, so a uh, prophet's never honored in their hometown, and uh, but Whitfield had a profound impact uh, more so on America than England. But while Whitfield was at Oxford, he fell into a group uh, called the Holy Club. You know, all of us as undergrads were looking for a Holy Club, weren't we, uh, when we when we got to campus? Um, but he ended up falling in with the Holy Club, which was John and Charles Wesley and some undergrads, and it was all about charitable works. It was all about uh, doing things, and they were known for uh, their uh, ascetic lifestyle. Uh, In fact, they were made fun of. They were called Bible moths. They were called uh, Methodists uh, because they were so methodical, and that's where Methodists came from, in their Bible study. And they would gather daily. They would say the litany every day. They would go to communion every week, and they really were The Holy Club. And so extreme was their asceticism that a member of the Holy Club died and the rumor was that he died because the Wesleys made him fast too much. Uh, So let that be a warning. Um, So these guys were really, really serious and what they were trying to deal with was this question. By what rules ought a Christian to regulate his life? By what rules ought a Christian to regulate his or her life. And that's what they spent their time doing, making up rules for themselves, trying to figure out how they ought to live their life as Christians. And as time went on, uh, things did not get better. They actually were driven to despair, to total despair. And uh, the Wesley stories are are fairly famous, uh, and Whitfield's not so much so. But this idea that the Wesleys had early on when they were at Oxford and that George Whitfield had of uh, what do I need to do to make it? What do I need to do to be the Christian that I know that I ought to be? What is the standard of measurement uh, for being a Christian? And this uh, story comes up in the Bible. And it comes up in Mark chapter 10, and we're going to stick with Whitfield, but we're going to look at the scriptures for a minute, at this rich young ruler, this rich young man that comes and meets Jesus in Mark chapter 10. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, "Uh, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother and father. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. with man it is impossible but not with God for all things are possible with God Well it seems like they might be two very different people George Whitfield and this rich young ruler uh, Whitfield again an ascetic he used to wear tattered clothes and refused to shine his shoes so that he looked the part He looked like he was really struggling for the Lord. And here you have a rich young guy in all of his finery who comes up and kneels before the Lord. But they had the same heart condition. Uh, They had the same heart problem. And that is that they were putting their trust in something other than Jesus Christ for their salvation. Now, when this rich young man comes up to Jesus and asks, uh, you know, the crowds must have been excited, especially the disciples, right? The disciples have already heard Jesus talk about the Son of Man has no place to uh, to lie his head. And the disciples at this point are thinking, look, this no place to sleep is for the birds. Here's a rich guy. He can really set us up, right? And he's pretty holy, right? He could We could franchise this business with this guy, right? We could set up a little place in Bethany, maybe something nice on Caesarea Maritina. It's going to be lovely. And... Uh, And so they're thinking, this is exactly the guy who we want on our team. He has all the credentials that we need. Uh, He's doing it all right. And he comes up and right out of the gate asks Jesus the wrong question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is it that I have to do to get in good with God? What is it that I have to do to be made righteous? What is it that I have to do to be made right in the world and with God and with my neighbor? And... What is it that I have to do to get into heaven, to have a relationship with the Lord? And Jesus says, well, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Now, you notice that this is about half of the commandments. And relatively speaking, worldly speaking, these are kind of the easier ones to to handle Right, most of us in this room have probably been able to say, "I've never killed anybody," or "I've not really defrauded anybody," or "I've not uh, borne false witness." Right, and I've honored my mother and father, and that's what this guy is thinking. Look, I've never killed anybody, and look, my parents—I got in this real nice place at St. Martin's in the Pines. It's lovely, and they're right there, and um, and I visit them every week. It's great, and and then Jesus says to him, "Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth." This guy was not around when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus said, I tell you the truth, that if you hate your brother in your heart, you've committed murder. You're just as guilty as the guy who pulled the trigger. If you've looked after anybody with lustful thoughts, you're guilty of adultery. Uh, This guy was following the letter of the law. He was able to say, look, I have outward conformity, but inwardly, he'd broken all of these. He'd broken all of them. But Jesus finds the bruise in his life. In each and every single one of our lives, there's always something in our life, uh, some sin that we're probably unaware of. Sometimes we might even think it's a badge of righteousness. We might think it's actually something that deserves merit, something that's, that's good. But remember, Jesus didn't die just for all of our bad stuff. He died for all of what we might perceive to be our good stuff, too. It's not as if... Uh, on On the cross, you know, we say, all right, Jesus, uh, we'll do the best that we can. And where we leave off, you pick up. Uh, But Jesus pays it all. Jesus takes everything. We bring nothing to the table. But he finds this one thing in this man's life, this bruise, and he pushes on it. And he says, you lack one thing. That's not a bad assessment, right? Okay, if there's one thing. Right, one thing, tell me what it is, and, and I'll 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 call Tony Robbins and we'll get working. Go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sad, for he had great possessions. For he had great possessions. Now remember I'm reading a little bit into the text but I don't think it's that much of a read the disciples and everybody looking around probably thought if anybody was the kind of had the credentials to be a disciple it's this rich young guy outwardly speaking he's got it all together and he's thinking the same thing lord i have the resources i have the behavior i have it all and i could really add something to your ministry Right? And it turns out the very best thing that he thought he had to offer was the very thing that Jesus said, go get rid of it. Go sell it. Get rid of it. This false ladder to heaven, Jesus took out right from underneath him. And the same thing was true of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was considered an incredibly holy person. Uh, they would visit... The jail in Oxford, Oxford Castle, which has now been converted into a nice hotel, and they have a Duncan I mean a uh, Krispy Kreme, uh, the only Krispy Kreme in England, I think, uh, there in the bottom of it, so it's very weird. So if you ever want to spend the night in a jail cell, you can go uh, and stay at the castle and pay for that. Um, but they also visited a debtor's prison, and they even, for people who owed small debts, they would take up collections to free them from prison. Uh, they would go visit uh, people who were about to... Uh, be sentenced to execution. These guys uh, did it all. John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield helped establish an orphanage in Savannah, Georgia, which you can still visit today, the Bethesda uh, Bethesda Orphanage outside of the city. So all of the, the downtown area. And so these guys, they had it going on. They had all of the right credentials. They were doing all the right things. And people probably went to bed at night praying, God, I, I wish I were like that rich young man. God, I, I wish that I were more like George Whitfield. And yet they had bruises in their lives that God began to push on. And it undid them because the very thing that they thought they had to offer God, the very best thing they thought they had going for them, turned out to be the very thing that God wanted them to get rid of. Now, this passage from Mark is very difficult for me because you can imagine this young guy who's still on his knees looking up and listening to Jesus with sort of an expectation, you know, a smile of expectation on his face, all of a sudden turned to dread and sadness. And then he stands up and the crowd parts and he walks away and everybody watches him as he walks until he's no longer able to be seen as he goes over the horizon. And, you know, there's a part of says, run after him. You know, go get him. And I, and I do wonder, whatever happened to this guy? What happened uh, to this rich young man? But, you see, the law has to do its work on us. We have to be aware of the bruise before we can receive the gospel. Now, it would have been easy for me just to tell this guy, you know, hey, why don't you come into our merry band of brothers, our disciples, and, um, and, you know, over time we'll work on this, this money thing, this sense of possession thing, uh, and eventually you'll be all right. Uh, but Jesus uh, is a master surgeon, and he doesn't just go in and clean it up. As David said, after he committed uh, um, adultery with Bathsheba, uh, did he say, God, polish up my heart and sustain, and renew a right spirit within me. No, he said what? created me a new heart. God is in the transplant business, not in the cleaning up. He gives us new hearts that are oriented toward him. And right now, this guy's heart is oriented toward himself and keeping track of what he's doing in life and what it's going to take to get him through and to sustain a relationship with God. And I, I want to emphasize that point because a lot of Christians will come to the Lord and say, you know, this wonderful offer of free grace. And, uh, and then they become Christians and they say, okay, now what do I have to do to sustain it? Right. Well, it's, it's like a gift. I have the terrible habit with um, our, our three-year-old daughter that when I give her something as a gift, I keep an eye on it. And if I don't feel like she's treating it the way that it ought to be treated, you know, I, I find myself sometimes saying and every time thinking, well, if you don't know how to handle it, Maybe we should give it to somebody else who does. Right? If if you're not, well, all of a sudden, it ceases to be a gift. It's not a gift anymore, is it? Now, I might have given it freely at the beginning, but now she has to sustain it. Well, that's not how God works, even though that's how sometimes we think God works. We think, okay, God has given us this gift, and so we uh, have to do things in order to make sure that God uh, doesn't catch us off guard. It's like that bumper sticker that says, uh, "Jesus is coming back. Look busy." Right? Uh, you know, this sense of we have to keep keep keeping on in order to lay to keep our hands on this wonderful gift that God has given us, but that's not the nature of a gift. It's a gift that God doesn't take away. It's ours, and it becomes our heart delight, our heart's delight, when God orients our hearts toward him. And Jesus is not making the point that simply about money. It's not just about whether you know, he, he says it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. But the greater point that he's making that applies to us, to George Whitfield, to this rich young man, is what are we putting our stock in? What is it that we think is going to establish our relationship with God and what is going to sustain it? I have um, a Close family member who is not a believer, but is married to a very strong believer, and over dinner one night, he I, I once asked him about, you know, what are what are your thoughts about when you die, and he said, well, I'm going to ride my wife's coattails right on into heaven, and um, and I thought, well, praise the Lord for that. Um, uh, so there are. All kinds of things that we're going to put our stock in. For, for this guy, it's clearly his wealth. For Whitfield, it's clearly what he perceived as his holiness. And that's just it. When we start talking about the Christian life, people start talking about holiness. But remember, if you're holy, it's because God has made you holy. It's God's holiness, not yours. Right. The Scripture talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Those things that are evident in our life because God is at work in our lives. And the way that the Scripture describes the fruit of the Spirit is that we bear fruit. We don't produce it, which means the Holy Spirit is the sap that works in our lives. It's God that produces the fruit. We simply bear it. We used to have some peach trees growing up in the backyard, and uh, one summer they just stopped producing peaches. And I didn't sit out there and start yelling at the tree, you know, bear fruit. What's wrong with you? Produce it. Produce it. Uh, because there was clearly a problem with the tree itself, and more so the sap. There was nothing in it that could produce the fruit. Uh, and even when it did produce fruit, what was the tree's job? Simply bore it. it. Produced itself, and the tree just, it came out naturally. That's what happened. Now, with George Whitfield, he felt like, you know, you've got to really work hard. You've really got to work hard to produce this fruit, But he knew deep down inside what Jesus was talking about. Now, when Jesus says for it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, uh, he is setting an incredible standard. I have actually heard preachers, I don't know where they have gotten this from, but preachers talk about the eye of the needle as some gate in Jerusalem that in order for a camel to go through, it has to get down on its knees, um, meaning that it's really hard, but you can still do it. Well, let me tell you, historically, archaeologically, there is no such gate. It never existed. What Jesus is really talking about is what? The eye of a needle. It's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. So is it that for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, meaning someone who puts their everything in something other than God. Somebody who is trusting in something else in order to establish and maintain their relationship uh, with God, and the disciples rightly say, "Then who can, then who can be saved? Then who can be saved? It makes salvation impossible if that's the standard. But what the Wesley started out doing was hoping that God graded on a curve. I know that I've said this before, but it's good. Uh, that hoping that God grades on a curve—that is, uh, that you can kind of look at people and say, you know, that person's really not doing so hot. I mean, I'll." You know, I could have given you all copies of uh, Us Weekly. Um, You know, Tom Cruise and uh, Katie Holmes are getting a divorce, right? Uh, So you can look at Us Weekly and say, oh, well, that's sad, but it makes us feel like we're maybe doing okay, right? So uh, being held up to crazy Tom Cruise, uh, I'm doing all right. Uh, But then all of a sudden Jesus says, but actually the standard is so far up there that you can't even see it that it's going to make you say, this is impossible, this is impossible. And sometimes when Jesus pushes on the bruise, it more than just hurts. It totally devastates you. It can actually bring your world crashing down. Now, George Whitfield came crashing down. And here's the story of his conversion. As he lay in bed at the close of a long illness, brought on by excessive fasting during Lent, Something had happened which undoubtedly had transformed his life and lay at the root of all his future triumphs. This is how he described it. After having undergone innumerable buffetings, God was pleased at length to remove the heavy load, to enable me to lay hold of his dear son by a living faith and by giving me the spirit of adoption, to seal me as I humbly hope even to the day of my everlasting redemption. Oh, with what joy! Joy unspeakable was my soul filled when the weight of sin went off, an abiding sense of the parting love of God and a full assurance of faith broke in upon my disconsolate soul. Sure, surely it was the day of my espousals, a day to be held in everlasting remembrance. It changed his life. As he sat there, ill from what he perceived to be the very thing that God thought that the thing that he thought God had called him to do. I worked at the summer camp one summer. Of course I did. And um, while I was there, uh, I worked in the pit crew, and our job was to wash dishes. And so three meals a day, 450 campers per meal. Um, It's hot, it's it's really awful, and it really uh, drives you to your knees. And at the end of the day, you're just cashed out, you're done. And there was a guy in the group who was such a sweet and wonderful guy. And just, you know, we would say he was really going after the Lord. He really wanted to be more like Jesus. And so uh, one night he said, you know what I'm going to try to do for the next, uh, every other night? I'm going to try to stay up and ask the Lord that he keep me up all night praying. Well, it didn't work. Uh, he found himself falling asleep, and it reminded me of the story of Whitfield and Wesley, who happened to be preaching in the same town in England one day, and uh, they shared uh, a bed at a local boarding house. And uh, Whitfield was a decided Calvinist, and Wesley a decided Arminian. And as uh, they were getting ready for bread, uh, bed, Whitfield knelt by the bed and prayed, Lord, I thank you uh, for drawing souls to you, and that they are in your hands. And that not even the enemy can come and snatch them out. Uh, we praise you for your providence. In Jesus' name, Amen. And then he crawled into bed. And Wesley was still kneeling by the bed and looked up and was sort of shocked to see Whitfield there. And Wesley said to Whitfield, Well, Mr. Whitfield, I see where your Calvinism has gotten you early to bed. Well, Wesley continued to pray and. Whitfield woke up and it had been hours and noticed that Wesley was still kneeling next to the bed praying. But he also noticed Wesley snoring rather loudly. (laughs) And uh, went over to Wesley and put his hands on his shoulders and said, Ah, Mr. Wesley, I see where your Arminian has gotten you. Bad knees when you could have been in bed hours ago if you were a Calvinist. Well, my friend... My friend began to judge his relationship with God based on his outward conformity to a standard that God actually hadn't even set. God didn't say, I want you to stay up all night long. But he thought, in order to show my devotion to the Lord, I'm going to stay up all night long. And the next morning when he woke up, he felt devastated. He was crushed because he thought that he had left, let the Lord down. It's like people who, uh, if you're one of those early risers, God bless you. I think that's a spiritual gift and, uh, and that only God can give it to you. So don't, so leave me alone. Um, Let's <laughs> say, like, you know, I've had people tell me, you know, you can really only, you know, have a quiet time early in the morning. And when I was in high school, I was, I was taught this and uh, I was given a book called My First 30 Quiet Times. Because the idea is if you do something for at least three weeks in a row every day, it becomes a habit. And I found that only true about bad habits. And so my friend would say, you know, you've got to get up early in the morning and meet the Lord and and all these things. And of course, what would happen is the alarm clock would go off at 530 and I'd hit snooze and I'd wake up. And my friend would say, well, how'd it go? And I said, well, I guess I'll I'll be honest with you. I I didn't get up. And he said, so Jesus was waiting for you. you. You stood him up. And I was like, and his coffee probably got cold. I mean, I don't, you know, I... Um, but thankfully, I had enough handle in the gospel back then to understand that uh, that is not what God is, is wanting of us. Uh, he doesn't want simply outward conformity, not to make a joke about it, but I walked into a, a, somebody's office one time, and they were in Human Resources, and you know those posters that are, have these lovely scenes, and underneath of it, it says something like perseverance, and there's some really nice quote about it, and his had this Beautiful photo with lush green around it, and it was an Aztec temple. And of course, it kind of it really um, accentuated the sacrificial altar there in the temple. And underneath of it, it said commitment. All that we ask of you around here is your heart. And um, uh, but that's actually what God is is asking for. God is saying, look. It's about relationship with me. It's about being in union with Christ. It's about living and basking in the gift and glory that is my grace. Now, again, the Holy Spirit is going to work in your life. And if you're a believer, you will bear fruit. You will bear fruit. And one of the fruit that is born often in my life is every day I wake up, I realize more and more my necessity for the Lord Jesus. Actually, I don't find that my sin is ebbing in my goodness Is waxing, is that right? No, that's the same thing. My sin is not getting less and my goodness is not growing. But in fact, the more I'm with the Lord, the more I realize how dark sin actually really is and how much more I need his grace in my life. But it's also not just a matter of believing in. You know, Whitfield could have easily have stood up and if you had said, George Whitfield, do you believe in Jesus Christ? He'd say, yeah, I believe he's the son of God. I believe, you know, I can say the creed and I can ascend to all of those things. But the question of Whitfield and what he came to realize is is not necessarily do you believe is Jesus Christ Lord, but is Jesus Christ your Lord? And also, do you not only believe in Jesus, but are you believing on Jesus for salvation? Well, there's a difference, right? I can say on 280 that there's a bridge that goes over the Cahaba River. I believe in it. I know that it's there, but do I believe on it? Do I have faith and confidence that if I step out on it or if I drive over it, uh, it will get me to the other side safely? Right? And that's what Jesus is calling this rich young man to. That's what Jesus is calling George Whitfield to. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that fruit will begin to work its way in our life and will bear itself out and Jesus giving this, after all this law, really, uh, with the rich young man, Jesus says this, You're right, who can be saved? With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. That the only way that we're going to find fulfillment in life, the only way that we're going to find satisfaction, uh, the only way that we are going uh, to know that we have an established relationship with God is through trusting in Jesus' merits alone and putting our full faith and hope in him. And that's hard because, again, the old man is always there waiting, always ready to try to assemble some way uh, to uh, make a false ladder into heaven. Um, I was uh, once... uh, Every once in a while, I'll do something uh, really great around the house. And, uh, you know, and you've all done this, right? You, you will have cleaned the kitchen or you will have done something. And, you know, it's kind of out of the goodness of your heart. But, um, but when your spouse comes home, you just kind of are waiting like, you know, hey? <laughs> right? And, um, and uh, this happened once with me. I won't mention my spouse's name. But... Um, <laughs> And, uh, and Lauren was very sweet, this is a good storyline, and, uh, and she, uh, and then finally I was just kind of like, well, and she goes, oh yeah, the kitchen really looks great, thanks, thanks a lot, and, uh, and then she said, there's your reward, right, because Jesus said, you know, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven and that the Pharisees look for the reward right now, uh, and so I find myself doing that a lot. Uh, and Whitfield found himself doing that a lot, and this rich young man finds found himself doing that a lot. Where on the outside people would call those deeds good, uh, but really there is that old man, uh, and in the case of Whitfield and the young man, the unregenerate person uh, who is looking actually for some credit. Look uh, what I have done. Love me, love me. And there's a part of us that does that with God too. So, this morning, uh, I hope that um, we can see this uh, amazing witness that is um, George Whitfield. And after this experience, John and Charles had gone to Georgia. <clears throat> and if you ever want an eye opener and you really want to be shaken in your Christian faith, just go to Georgia for a little bit. <laughs> and John and Charles had a disastrous time of it. Uh, John actually fell in love with this woman who did not reciprocate. And so. And she ended up getting engaged to another guy. And so he did what any of us would do. He excommunicated them from the communion table. <laughs> and uh, he was ridden out of town on a rail. He actually had to jump the Savannah River and escape to South Carolina to avoid being tarred and feathered. But, so they were having a real rough go at it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And Charles came home first. And uh, Charles had been broken while he was there, too, and had not been converted yet, although Charles had been ordained. And he comes back from Georgia And he hears Whitfield preach because Whitfield was going to go over and take Charles's place as a missionary to Georgia. Um, And Wesley gets off the boat and he's hearing Whitfield preach in London while waiting for a boat. And he hears Whitfield preach in London with such passion and such power that, this is what Wesley said, the churches would not contain the multitudes that thronged to hear him. Charles exclaims, I long to break loose to be devoted to God, to be in Christ a new creature. And that's the prayer of my heart, even as a Christian, and surely those who are really trying to please God from their outward conformity and actions, don't you just long to break loose, to get out from under the weight of your sin, to get out from under the weight of the law which is holding you down and holding you back from enjoying perfect fellowship with God and to simply be devoted to him, and to be made a new creature, to be made new, to know that the old is gone and that the new has come. And so that we might have this gospel message take deep root in our hearts, that we might be refreshed by it, that we might be made new in it, and that we might be changed by it as George, George Whitfield was all those many, many moons ago. Questions, comments, concerns? Well, we know this to be the truth, but I think as you've expressed in your own struggles that we all uh, find ourselves uh, unable and, and crushed by our own actions, uh, which I guess I'm reassured that I am struggling. Yeah, I mean, that's a fruit. Of, I think that that's a fruit of the Holy Spirit working in your life, the fact that you're struggling. So if somebody comes to me and says, I'm really struggling, um, that's not necessarily a a bad thing. I mean, the, the person who says, well, I don't have a really, I don't have a problem with what I'm doing, that's a problem. Um, and then that's an indicator that, that the bruise needs to be pushed on. But the answer to struggle is surrender, right? Not try harder, which is harder to do, actually. just have one thing that I guess is more for clarification than anything, and I really appreciate your talk today, but that is when you were talking about the eye of the needle and Mm -hmm. the camel going through it, and you were relating that to a belief in God, would you translate that that must be a a belief in Jesus, Mm -hmm. and that is the only way? Yeah, I mean, that's, well, there you said it. Um, that, yeah, it is, it is a belief in, in Jesus who's a particular person and has a particular plan for salvation. is not sort of a, a generic thing. And in fact, Christianity is the only religion in the world that, um, that contains this gospel message of, of surrender. Every, every other philosophy or worldview or religion is going to tell you that's when you really need to try harder. Right? They're not, um, they may set the standard high, but it's going to lead you to despair. And so, ultimately, the point that Jesus is making is that hopefully your striving ought to bring you to the place of rescue, where you realize that you need to be rescued, not simply helped through the eye. In light of that rescue, you did mention that Whitfield that the idea of adoption was kind of one of the things that turned his heart. That yeah. That God adopted him. Right. He didn't adopt God. That's right. Next week, the temptations. That's true. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, George Whitfield, and we thank you that we are made sons and daughters uh, through adoption uh, by your grace and through your death on the cross. Uh, Lord Jesus, that we would um, surrender to you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that we would trust in you and you alone uh, for not only our salvation but for anything that we might think of as holiness, uh, that you would work through us and that all the glory would be given to your name through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.